Hey, everybody. Good morning. This is your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the July 23rd, 2013 edition of Ask a Leader. Another reason to step outside this coming um, month in August is a chance to take in the new Swan Theater season of uh, King Lear, Midsummer Night's Dream, and the Fantastics under the direction, the capable direction of Eli Simon, who's going to be my first guest. And then in the second half, as summer also continues to heat up, we'll talk with a fossil fuel fellow, uh, Marissa Zuckerman from Pitzer College with the campaign. It's called 350.org. Stay with me. We'll be right back in a moment. Uh, welcome back. My first guest today is Eli Simon, whose artistic directorial and teaching credits with or without the clowns is so extensive that I simply cannot list it all. The venues are both generously local and prodigiously international, and he may never uh, he may never ever show the wear and the tear of all these extensive undertakings. And uh, you'll know that when you see him at the theater. It's lovely that the UCI Faculty Online provides uh, profiles. They make it so easy for anyone of us to peruse the body of work that professors like Eli Simon uh, can claim. Eli received his Bachelor of Arts in Drama from the University of California, Davis, and a Master's of Fine Arts in Acting from Brandeis University. And he was a visiting professor of acting at UC Davis before joining the faculty at UCI about just almost two decades ago. Uh, his current courses include scene study, auditioning technique, mask acting, comedy, and of course, clowning. And of all the community radio stations that this busy guy could grant an interview in another busy season, he would grant an interview with me on mine it's to talk today about the summer 2013 season at UC Irvine's Trevor School of the Arts New Swan Theater is Eli Simon. Welcome to the show, Eli. Thank you so much. It's just a real pleasure to be on the air with you. Well, thank you. And folks, he's just wedging us in with uh, he's working with with Keith Banks, who's uh, responsible for the, the whole set construction and assembly and all that kind of a thing. So we're glad that Eli could uh, fit us in this morning. So the New Swan Theater gets its bustling start off and two Thursdays from now at 8 p.m. So uh, it's running August. The Shakespeare plays are running August 1 through the 31st, located at the Gateway Commons near the Langston Library in Aldrich Park. So most of the odd dates of August are Midsummer Night's Dream, and most of the even dates are King Lear. Then the Fantastics run will be sept starting September 9th. I'm sorry, sep the September is the ninth month. Uh, September sixth, mm -hmm. uh, uh, most of the dates through um, uh, September twenty second. The original plan was for the title role to be played by Dudley Knight, who suddenly passed away after suffering suffering from a heart attack late late uh, last month. And so, in the service of what Dudley uh, was anticipated to contribute to this year's festival, let's Eli Simon. Let's begin with a tribute to Dudley Knight. Mm. Well, Dudley was a very dear friend and a dear colleague for many of us, for all of us that extended back a, a decade or more in the drama department. He was uh, a great, great friend, a great actor, a terrific person with a wonderful sense of humor, a keen sense of humor, and a certain kind of panache and style about him. 
He was known across the country for his portrayals of King Lear, especially in Falstaff, uh, in Shakespearean festivals. And we were really looking forward to working with him. And for him, it was a homecoming back here in Irvine, ready to take a role in King Lear. And, and we know that he died a very, very happy man. He was happy to be here, and we're all incredibly saddened at his loss. And uh, I don't know what else to say, really. Well, what I do want to point out is that there, it was very important, his contribution to the whole, the vocal coaching in drama. Nobody, nobody like Dudley Knight picked up where the, some of those uh, orthodoxies left off. And his, mm-hmm. uh, it was one thing that in the lovely tribute that Michael Boom in the L.A. Times mentioned in the um, the later uh, posted obituary about the Amnish. That's uh, but but give us a little background on what the Amnish was that he used to uh, deadpan about. Well, Dudley Knight was really one of the country's leading vocal coaches, and so what a vocal coach does is a vocal coach works with actors to uh, increase their ability to breathe and to resonate and to speak clearly. Uh, so that they're so that they can be understood on stage, basically. And whereas prior to Dudley, there had been uh, a, a technique that was really led by Edith Skinner, which had this kind of um, slightly slightly affected, almost I would say, British sound to it. So you would hear actors in in old movies, let's say, sounding a bit like this if you listen to them and having what we what was then considered to be sort of perfect speech. And Dudley was really responsible for just blowing that up and allowing people to find their own natural voices. So Amish was a way was a was a made up language, really in a way to allow people to just speak more freely, to use their own voices, and to make decisions about articulation that made sense for the roles they were in and in service of the, the plays and the directors that they were uh, they were working in and for. And it, it was really quite extraordinary, his range and service, that while uh, being uh, a contributor on the campus in, in the in the, your drama department, he was also uh, certainly connected with uh, very, very visible actors around the world with their professional contracts, how, how uh, so-and-so was supposed to sound. I know that's what Keith Bangs used to tell me about who was on the phone on Dudley <laughs> Knight's uh, at, at his house when, um, you know, he was here on the faculty before he went on the, um, uh, took his emeritus uh, status to, right. uh, to Pennsylvania, where he, he resided when he was coming over here to, uh, to produce, uh, help um, to act out in the role of King Lear. Yeah. Well, a lot of great actors would call would call Dudley for advice, either on an accent, uh, if they were in a particular play, maybe they needed a South African accent, or they needed to sound more French, or whatever it was that they were working on. Dudley was one of those few, those handful of coaches in the country that people would turn to for advice and mentoring on those kinds of issues. And he led workshops with his uh, dear colleague, Phil Thompson, who is here on our faculty and is uh, head of the acting program, and will be playing the fool in King Lear. And the two of them, the Thompson Knight duo, really, oh. were um, teaching voice workshops in their technique. And people from all over the world will would attend these workshops. Well, so. Eli, did the students get 
you know what a resource they had in Dudley Knight? Oh, everybody knew. <laughs> everybody knew that. Of course, we tend to take for granted somebody that's just living with us and teaching with us. So maybe while he was on the faculty here, people knew that he was an extraordinary talent and a greatly uh, a great uh, actor and tremendously gifted. But I think in returning and coming back to us and having not been here for a decade, the sense of uh, having someone of this stature join us was very, very clear to everybody that was in the show. And Indeed. affiliated with the New Swan Shakespeare Festival as well. Oh, yes, yes. I so long to look for that. And you uh, you can talk about what it was like then to, uh, well, there's grief happening. And then mm-hmm. amidst the grief, you have to put together a uh, some kind of uh, an adequate substitution. And you were able to do that in Henson Keys. How did you manage, Eli? Well, uh, when, when Dudley uh, had his heart attack... It, it was it was clear to me even before he passed that he wasn't going to be able to play the role if if he was, mm. were to recover and he didn't recover. But uh, I knew that Dudley wouldn't want us to miss a beat. He wouldn't want us to wait. Uh, he would. I could hear him saying very clearly in his coaching and, voice <laughs> and in his booming sonorous voice as I still hear him ah Eli the show must go on exactly and so uh, that's really the way it is I mean we couldn't cancel the show and we didn't want to cancel the show so I began to uh, consult my colleagues uh, all of whom had terrific suggestions for actors who could play the role but my mind turned to Henson Keyes who was an actor that I had worked with at the Illinois Shakespeare Festival and was one of the great actors that I have ever worked with, one of maybe three or four. And at the time I, that I was working with Henson, which was about eight, maybe eight, nine years ago, I, I, we had talked about doing a Lear at some point. I said, oh. what, what role do you really look forward to playing? And he said, I really want to play King Lear. Oh, my goodness. Um, at that time, I'd say he was maybe in his mid-50s, and he's now in his mid-60s. So... As it turned out, he's played Lear now twice, and he was just completing a run of King Lear at Arkansas Repertory Theater. And just completing, I mean, at the time that I called him (gasps) that weekend was closing night. So I asked him if he would be interested in joining us. He was very interested in in working with me on it. And and at the Swan, when I showed him pictures of the new Swan Theater, he nearly fell out of his seat because it's so unique. And uh, he was able to join us a couple weeks ago which has proven to be plenty of time to put together what is going to be a scintillating portrayal of Lear. This will be one for the ages. I really believe that. It will be. It will be. We'll talk about that setting. For those of you just joined us here on Ask a Leader, we're listening to Eli Simon, director of UCI School of the Arts Drama Department, talking about this summer season at UCI's new Swan Theater. And the new uh, the King Lear production is going to be set in a very compelling situation to the extent that you can tell us about what we can uh, look forward to so everybody can focus on rereading or reading for the first time Lear because they know that it's the settings and safe hands. What can you tell us about the setting, Eli? Well, what we've decided with with this particular production of Lear was that we would focus on the elemental truths of the play. And it's really very primitive when you 
examine what the play is about and what Shakespeare was really addressing. He's addressing issues of mortality. Uh, he's addressing issues of family, of trust, of judgment. And so I thought that this play belonged in a world of long ago. There are, uh, it's a, it's a kill-or-be-killed mentality in the play. So we've set it in, in an Iron Age setting, which is even a little bit earlier than, than Shakespeare had intended. Uh, we've, we have a lot of um, large weapons, uh, like very heavy swords, um, battle axes. Um, uh, we have uh, shields and the like. And it's very ritualistic in that sense. So um, one thing to always remember when you're seeing a show at New Swan Shakespeare Festival is that we're not going to be trundling out big sets. It's a small theater. It seats 128 people in the round. And so we really use the theater as Shakespeare's theater was intended to stage all of the scenes in a central circular area without the help of massive scenery walls and uh, scenic devices of any kind, really. It's mm-hmm. the actors, the costumes, and the props that are needed. It's so elegant, so succinctly elegant. And so Henson Keyes gets to take up the sword in that. I and mean, he's, he's already seen the scene. He's got, the, he's got mm-hmm. everything. So he's probably pretty amazed by how uh, it's all, uh, the whole setting's been set up there. And so, as I said, folks, that this, that King Lear is going to be in the uh, odd, the odd, no, the, the even nights. Uh, well, it, I'm not sure that they're always even, but uh, I hadn't actually checked for that. I, but well, I checked that. Um, it's it, not, it's just that, that it it's, out? so yeah, you can, most, it's not all, every single of the, um, uh-huh. the even nights, but, um, but that's the way to. Uh, sort of succinctly set up the schedule for people. And uh, okay. we're, we're going to let everybody know uh, about how to get to the box office um, online or the dial. We'll get to that. So um, right. then, Eli, as you said, the, the, the New Swan Theaters, so we'll call it brand or tendency, is that you're setting known pieces in lesser known uh, kinds of constructs. So the same thing for then Midsummer Night's Dream will be a, an uncanny different kind of situation because it, hundreds of productions of these are being done all over Southern California. Absolutely. But New, New Swan's got a corner on the the different market. So what can you tell us without too many spoiler alerts about well, Midsummer Night's Dream? Well, we want to be able to have the the flexibility to set our plays wherever we like that makes sense to us. So Beth Lopes, who's directing yes. Midsummer, has decided to put Midsummer in a Harry Potter-like setting of all places. It's an East Coast prep school. So the lovers are all students at the school, and the mechanicals who are putting on the play are the janitor, the nurse, the cook at the school, and uh, the fairies are gargoyles on the outside of the buildings that come to life at night. It's very beautiful and very unique. And it's a magical setting in the swan because we're close to the park, so you feel that you feel the stars and the moon and the elements out there. Midsummer, of course, is a beautiful play for an outdoor theater. And I was advised by my colleagues that have run Shakespeare festivals that we really needed to produce Midsummer within the first three seasons. I can see why, just based on ticket sales, it's it's just about sold out. And um, 
we have actually added a couple performances just to open up some more seats, but uh, they'll be going fast. So if you're interested in seeing that play, you should probably uh, get your tickets right away. Okay. Okay, folks. Well, let's just give a little lip service to that, that the box office um, can be located online at on the, on the web at arts.uci.edu forward slash tickets and the inestimable David Walker may pick up the phone at any at uh, certain hours <laughs> at 824-2787, of course, the area code 949. And uh, um, I'm going to suggest this for all of you who are leaning closer and closer to your streaming laptops or, or, or radio sets that do not be deterred. Were you to notice that the website's telling you that it is sold out, there's always a way to get another ticket that some people can't make it. So mm-hmm. I say pack your picnic, folks. This is not a call to action on, on, on the community radio FCC, if you're listening, uh, that I suggest a picnic be ready. And, uh, and some some way, some kinds of tickets are going to be available. And what um, if if, if all else fails, then you you just have something else to do in the, the lively setting, UCI and the University Center right across the street. So um, we're we're talking about this picnic. That's a, the picnic situation. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, a an aspect. It's not a character. It's an aspect in the setting. And I noticed last year that that Aldrich Park adjacent to the commons where the the theater is set up is mm-hmm. a much underutilized uh, resource. Mm. So I'm thinking um, we talked a little bit about the uh, the way in which Keith Bangs and others are going to institutionalize this picnic arrangement this year. Right. Well, we're we will be uh, offering catered dinners in the future. We haven't quite set that up yet, but many of our patrons would walk down to the. Gateway Commons and pat right past the theater into Aldridge Park, have dinner. Uh, we can uh, watch people's baskets and blankets during the show, so you don't have to kind of bring those into the theater with you. And uh, it's a it's a wonderful way to just spend an evening, have a nice picnic dinner in the park, and then wander over to the theater, watch our pre-show, and take in either Midsummer or King Lear, or the Fantastic. Right. That's our that's our overall plan. We haven't really got the catering in line yet to provide food, but um, but there's plenty of food available across the street or well, I think even, e- on, even on campus. Well, Eli, I think people are pretty used to bringing their picnics around. And look, the Hollywood okay. Bowl isn't uh, predisposed to that. So, if, you know, the, some of right. the bigger venues, uh, it's not about providing all that. Your, your hands are full. <laughs> well, whole- we... <laughs> We, we haven't really had time to figure that one out yet, although we did call a few different restaurants, and they, they have expressed interest. So oh. it may be that next season or uh, or the season after we'll have uh, a sort of dinner plus theater package that uh, that people could enjoy. But in the meantime, I think you're right, Claudia. People can come down and pretty much everybody that wanted to see a show last year was able to get in by hook or crook. So even if we're sold out, there may be people that don't show up, or we may be able to seat you in usher seats or, or otherwise. So uh, if you don't, if you're not able to get a ticket, don't despair. You can probably still see the shows. Come, come in, and there we, uh, we can try for it. Exactly. So we meant we talked about the settings for the two Shakespeare plays, but I, we hadn't yet talked about the Fantastics. Um, mm. Is it's a little bit of a change in the a contemporary uh, uh, piece? Can you tell us what you're going to do with that classic? Well, we're 
planning to leave it alone in a sense and just let it play as intended, which is a very beautiful, poignant, simple tale told in a in an empty space. So, in, for the decades that it ran in New York, it was a it was a fairly open theater with a trunk and some props and a piano, and that seemed to me to be a perfect fit for for New Swan. Shakespeare Festival. Our theater is a theater, again, that doesn't want a ton of scenery and right. uh, extra gadgets. So whereas the recent production at South Coast Rep was wonderful in that it had really elaborate magic tricks, um, we won't have anything like that. We'll be able to focus on the actors and the music and the story itself. So it, it has a a kind of a yield feel to it, but the director Marana Delaney and Gary Busby, chair of drama, who are uh, directing this, are adding a little uh, contemporary twist to it. Uh, that you'll you'll notice that in the costumes and the way that the actors, the younger actors, uh, carry off their roles. I think it's going to be a delightful evening. It's our first musical in the Swan. Uh, this is only our second season, but last year uh, we produced Comedy of Errors and Merchant of Venice. So uh, now we will have produced four Shakespeare plays, including the two this year, plus the Fantastic. So it's a chance to sit in the Swan and experience something different. A huge range. Well, I, you alluded to um, Gary Busby's uh, contribution as director uh, to the Fantastics, and for those who were uh, Lucky enough, uh, and where I was in the, at the the right of spring, the soccer project, we we mm. could see uh, how just expansive and creative his thinking is. So it's a, the fantastic should be a real treat uh, to I see that under be. his direction. And, I think and, it will be. We have a tremendous cast for that, and really for all of the shows, we're mixing professional actors with our uh, tremendous uh, stable of student. Oh, fine. Undergrad and grad students, well. are they getting a shot at that? Mostly graduate yes, students. absolutely. Absolutely. We're, we have a mixture. Actually, our mixture is yes. graduate. We have one of the top graduate actor training programs in the country. So you're, you're really getting a chance to see future stars of Broadway, film, and TV right here, right now. You can see um, it. And so we have graduate actors, we have undergraduate actors, and we have alumni, who mostly who are living in Los Angeles and okay. want to come down for the festival. And then we have uh, professional actors mixed in with that. Wow. Well, I, I guess I just want to back up with the Henson Keys when you're talking about mm-hmm. uh, the uh, sort of how everything seems to have come together so amazingly and elegantly, and that he had played both the Fool and Lear, uh, um, Lear's Fool and the, and Lear, and and you're and talking about as well, right? And so, but and and uh, Phil Thompson having uh, he is going to be playing the Fool, and he was collaborating with Dudley. So you've kind of gotten Henson Keys the kind of the collaboration one guy uh, with this role. So it's really it's right. it's it's uncanny good fortune in uh, such a, a a rapid kind of a, a, a sort of a development in the loss of of Dudley Knight. I'm sure. As Dudley looks down at the whole setting, he'll be so proud and happy for all of you. I have that feeling. I really do. And we, we, we are uh, honoring Dudley Knight with the entire season. It's really for him. And, and we, say, you know, we, we feel that he's with us. We, we really do. We, 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 uh, uh, we're very saddened at his loss. And, 
and we're heartened knowing that he would be very proud of us and, and very happy that we're, we're going forward. And that Henson was able to uh, fill in in his way. Of course, well, you know, we miss seeing Dudley's Lear. That, that we don't get. Right. Uh, but, uh, um, the you know, next no, best. no two actors are alike. So right. you, you uh, get to enjoy Henson. And uh, he is really fantastic in the role. We, uh, we're delighted to have him. He's uh, now a part of our Swan family. And he's always been very close to us as a colleague who teaches at University of Illinois, another top program in the mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. So Phil and I have spent a lot of time just chatting with Henson and being with him on the road when we were recruiting actors. We all recruit at the same time. So he's a, a very familiar uh, face and personality and a tremendous colleague. And what a great guy to help us out in really? this time of need. Exactly. And the takeaway for your students is, folks, you know, be good, be plugged in, because you never know what's going to happen, know. either uh, uh, the directing, the acting, the producing end of, uh, of these kinds of um, situations. So it's, it's a marvel. I can't wait. I've got, I've got my tickets in hand and with my little group that uh, we're going to make it an annual proposition. And um, I'm uh, hoping uh, others will join in with us one more time before we let Eli Simon go. The website for purchasing tickets for all three productions, King Lear, Midsummer Night's Dream, and the Fantastics, is at the on the website arts.uci.edu forward slash tickets. Then the number to call uh, some, you can either leave a message, sometimes David Walker's there, live at 949-824-2787. Well, Eli, Simon, it's been a pleasure talking with you amidst all that you're trying to pull off here as the uh, the opening uh, day is yet uh, a week and two days from this day. <laughs> Eli Simon, Drama Department Director at the Claire Trevor Brand School Yards, thank you for being with us on the program today. Thank you so much for having me, and we look forward to seeing everybody at the Swan. Well, Thanks so much. Thank you for pulling it all together so well. Good luck and congratulations in advance. Thank you. So we are going to let the little uh, music interlude play while we then um, have a piece coming up here to uh, with Dee Dee Bridgewater, uh, Stairway to the Stars. Uh, Dee Dee, won't you, won't you please play for us? So, thank you. Stay with us. Let's build a stairway to the stars and climb that stairway to the stars. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us back with Ask a Leader. My next guest is Ms. Marissa Zuckerman, this year one of 40 Fossil Free Fellows with the 350.org organization. This organization's been around with us since 2007, and we're going to be focusing the interview on that particular organization's uh, activities. And um, a little bit, though, first about um, Marissa Zuckerman. She was raised in Oakland, California, and she'll return as a sophomore at Pitzer College, where she's majoring in environmental studies. She's a member of the Claremont College's divestment team and a 350.org, as I said, fossil-free fellow. She's working, writing, and blogging on divestment and the climate change movement. 
She comes to us today from 350 headquarters, actually from her residence, but she's not far from where the 350 headquarters is in Oakland, California. Welcome to the show, Marissa. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Well, we're glad that you can uh, put aside a little time because we know when fellows have a summer program, there's every minute that you've got to... um, you know, plug in and it's applied moment. So um, let's start, Marissa, with just a little background on uh, 350.org with uh, its extensively fanned out to, uh, participation activation in 188 countries founded by author Bill McKibben, who wrote one of the first books on global warming for the general public. And he's, he's getting that, I mean, for those of us that are thinking long term, I guess there is no more crucial movement than this 350.org in my mind. I guess you would agree with that. Yes, absolutely. And this movement is really coming at a crucial time, as you said. Um, You know, we're seeing more and more climate-induced crises, uh, extreme weather events, things like that. And this movement has really stepped up uh, where we need it and when we need it to try to combat the climate crisis and, and definitely make a difference. And that's where we, uh, some people may remember, some listeners that Step It Up was uh, in 2007 where the, the, the 350.org campaign began. There were uh, roughly, what, 2,000 rallies around all 50 states urging Congress to adopt uh, their call to action and the, with the idea being of cutting carbon consumption uh, 80% by the year 2050. And according now to the uh, 350.org research, there's uh, the world's reached about 394 parts uh, per million levels of carbon. So uh, what is the goal at this point, Marissa? Yeah, um, and you know, actually, recently we reached uh, 400 parts per million. So that was a, a pretty big milestone and um, pretty dismaying. It's definitely a big challenge. But at this point, we're definitely trying to expand this climate movement across the country. One of our big campaign pushes right now is the divestment movement, which is spreading across the country. It's currently at 308 campaigns um, at colleges and universities, 105 cities and states, um, and religious organizations as well. And basically what we're calling for is to ask these institutions to remove uh, investments in fossil fuels from their endowments. And you got a little wind in your wings with uh, President Obama's uh, climate change initiative that um, he came out with at the end of June, and he refers directly to the divestment uh, efforts. Yes, he did. That was actually certainly a surprise. None of us were really expecting that. Um, Yeah, if if, uh, listeners recall, he said, invest, divest, make your voices heard, um, which was a little a little nod to this divestment campaign, which is certainly spreading across the country faster than anyone expected, I think. Well, it's uh, probably a little bit bigger than a little nod, with, uh, but you're probably wondering about, there's uh, indicating that, uh, that with it's maybe being symbolistic, um, that uh, maybe, but that there's more than that that is, of course, uh, required. So um, working with, well, let's first talk about that, um, there are many things that have been going on this summer that 350.org has been staging, Recently uh, completed was the global power shift in Istanbul, Turkey, uh, where activists, young activists, all congregated, uh, dealing with um, carbon footprints being negotiated, and then everybody going back. So that that's already happened this last uh, earlier this month. Now um, let's talk about what you forty fellows are doing. Uh, a little bit about how you were selected, uh, and we. Uh, 
whether that 350.org is envisioning institutionalizing this kind of fellowship program so that we've got a good farm team of activists that are, are getting prepared uh, each summer to, to take up this all-important responsibility of mobilizing around the country and beyond. Mm-hmm. So, yes, as you said, there are 40 of us spread across the country. We are all college students. And um, it was basically an application process. They sent out this inquiry um, explaining the program and asking people across the country from different colleges to apply, and 40 of us were selected. Some of us are working with 350 offices or chapters around the country, but many are actually working with separate local organizations, um, not 350 chapters, working on local issues um, in these communities. And it doesn't matter that it's not with 350. What matters is that there's activation here. Yes, absolutely. It's just all about building the movement and really uh, getting to know what local people's needs in different smaller uh, in smaller towns and cities as well. And your background is in the sustainability there that you're working on at Pitzer College. Uh, the other 40 fellows, what are some of the backgrounds in their, their training and their, their, where they want to go? Mm-hmm. It's actually pretty diverse. Many of us are um, majoring in environmental uh, studies and issues like that, but you know, others have focused on journalism. Some are more in ecology and biology. Um, some are pre-law. It's really a wide variety that we have. Excellent. So, um, for those of you who've just joined us, we're talking to Marissa Zuckerman. She is a Fossil Free Fellow with the 350.org campaign, and she's a Pitzer College student here on Ask a Leader 88.9. FM in Irvine, streaming all over this overheating globe at KUCI.org. So we've let's talk about the summer heat series. It's now underway. I mean, right now happening. All towns, both small and large, they're staging areas for this campaign that can be followed on the joinsummerheat.org. It allows listeners to take up the charge along with 350.org, and get their locale on the map. So right now, um, would you tell us what Summer Heat is trying to do and reach out to have others do with? Yes, absolutely. So Summer Heat is a big campaign, as you said, that started about a week ago and is continuing right now for the next two to three weeks into mid-August. And basically the idea behind this campaign is that as the planet has reached 400 parts per million, of CO2 and the planet is literally heating up this time of year is statistically the hottest stretch of the year, we're going to make the political climate hot as well. Um, So it's a nice metaphor, but essentially what we're doing is we're trying to create, what we are doing is creating a series of of actions across the country in all different cities, as you said, Um, Richmond, California, the Pacific Northwest, Nebraska, Green River, Utah, Um, and on the East Coast as well, doing different actions that are um, looking at areas where the fossil fuel industry has been particularly damaging and uh, organizing the community and really mobilizing um, concerned citizens to fight back. And Mr. McKibben is showing up at all of these places, the the, uh the lead organizer, the founder for 350.org, he's in my, he was in my own hometown in Vancouver, Washington. And anybody streaming up there, uh, there's, there is a there there on this Saturday, uh, July 27th, as well as many, many other places. And so by following Join 
summerheat.org. Folks, you can either find out if it's already happening there or you need to take up uh, this project because, I, as I said, I'm going to say it a few more times today that I, for the for the long term, for the this this project, I think is is the one to really throw in one's energy with because it's, um, as you said, 400 parts per million uh, carbon uh, in the atmosphere. Uh, it's, it's an acceleration um, that's not been experienced uh, <laughs> before, uh, I mean, ever, since other sort of massive uh, sort of uh, consequences. So pardon that stumble. Um, so there are different inputs. There's the the Keystone Pipeline, among other kinds of choices of energy, are the focus of where the summer heat um, activity and divestment is going on. So you want to break down all of the, the energy uh, sources that are of concern and, and how you're getting people to uh, address that, change what they're doing. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> well, as you said, the Keystone XL pipeline is a huge concern. And this has been um, in the works for years now. And so far, the climate movement has done a pretty good job of getting President Obama to continue to delay um, the pipeline and try to make sure that there's a, a really good environmental review of it, which so far has not happened. Um, for those of you who don't know, the Keystone XL pipeline is a pipeline that would run directly down the middle of the country from Canada to Texas, where the tar sands oils would be refined in Texas refineries. And essentially, um, the Keystone XL pipeline must not be approved and must not be built. Uh, climate scientist Dr. James Hansen from NASA has labeled the Keystone XL pipeline as game over for the climate, simply because the amount of carbon stored in the Canadian tar sands is simply too much. We can't burn that much carbon if we have any hope for staying below two degrees and maintaining a livable planet. Um, another large concern about the Keystone XL pipeline is oil spills. And these pipelines do spill, as we all know. We see it on the news all the time. And um, the Keystone XL pipeline threatens numerous aquifers across the country, which supply drinking water to dozens of millions of people, um, as well as irrigation to agricultural businesses, which is simply unacceptable for um, an industry whose pipelines have spilled numerous times in recent years. So um, now, is when we, we're talking about taking a source out, there has to be some other way because every, every new appliance that people have developed a new dependency on means that there's ever-increasing energy needs. So what are we doing in place of these sources of energy? Absolutely, that's a great question. Um, well, as you know, solar and wind energy have been on the rise um, enormously in recent years. And uh, Germany can be seen as a great example of the success of these clean energies. Um, President Obama, one of the good things that he did in his climate action plan last month was to um, increase the funding for green energy technologies and uh, stated a goal to double wind and, and solar electricity generation by 2020. Um, so that would be a great source of new energy. And as we move forward, one of the things that we really have to be careful with is to make sure that we are choosing the right 
green energy. So one of the things that Obama supported in his climate action plan was um, nuclear energy and natural gas production and clean coal, which really there is no such thing as clean coal. Um, and nuclear and natural gas both pose numerous um, safety and health concerns and are really not truly clean energies. And it's just the wrong path for um, green energy to be going down. Well, I didn't hear conservation, but I, I know that's the strategy um, with Southern California Edison decommissioning the nuclear power plant in San Clemente. But I, and that's that's the sort the go word here. We're all operating with the, the flex alerts and that kind of a thing. So, but I I'm sure that um, conservation is something that you're talking about. I just didn't hear that when you were talking about that. But you must be using that as a a way to uh, because the other the other means are certainly uh, not going to replace at the same rate of dialing down some of the um, the, the dirtier sources for energy. So uh, how is conservation also being incorporated into the message, Marissa? Mm -hmm. Conservation is absolutely a critical part of this move towards a more sustainable um, sustainable lifestyle. And we all need to be aware of our individual choices and how they play out and how they're affecting the environment and our resource use. Um, you know, water, electricity, conserving how much we drive if possible. We all need to start thinking about changes to our everyday lifestyles. However, um, you know, there have been so many government subsidies for dirty oil, and we're now starting to see a transition towards clean energy. And there, there is absolutely potential for us to replace our dirty energy consumption with green energy. Cons uh, conservation is also, as you said, a critical part of this transition, and both will definitely be important in the coming years. Indeed. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, it's Ask a Leader here on 88.9 FM in Irvine, that's KUCI, and streaming all over the overheating planet at uh, on the web at KUCI.org. My guest today is Marissa Zuckerman, a Pitzer College sophomore shortly, and a Fossil Free Fellow at 350.org. And uh, folks, you can um, follow up more of what's going on with the organization by simply looking up the on the web, 350.org. And they, there are so many different tabs to uh, find out where you can uh, get involved. If you don't see a particular uh, so join summerheat.org um, activity in your area. There are ways that you can get one started. And then there's also so many um, different kinds of audiovisual tools and resources available. And maybe you'd like to tell us, Marissa Zuckerman, about the Do the Math uh, video. Yes, absolutely. So the Do the Math campaign um, has been kind of what really started off this divestment um, effort. Bill McKibben last year went on a Do the Math tour around the country where he spoke in numerous states. And that is actually one of the things that really inspired me and got me involved in the campus divestment campaign at Pitzer College. Basically, the idea is that um, Do the Math comes down to three numbers. Those numbers um, start with two degrees Celsius, which is basically the idea that at the Copenhagen Climate Conference, in 2009, world leaders agreed that the global temperature cannot safely rise more than two degrees. So 
so this has been kind of accepted as a red line across the world that if we want to have any hope for, you know, the same kind of lifestyle and a, liv a livable future on planet Earth, we need to keep the temperature below 2 degrees Celsius. Okay. The second number is um, 565 gigatons of carbon dioxide. And that is the amount of carbon dioxide that we can pour into the atmosphere and have some hope of staying below 2 degrees. So this, um, in a sense, is kind of the maximum amount of carbon dioxide that we can still burn to stay below. That's an annual? That's what kind of level is that? Is it... No, that is total. That total? Yes. Yeah, oh. so it's, it's pretty extreme. Wow. Oh, gosh. All right, there's a third number here in the list here from the, um, the Copenhagen Conf or no, in the Do the Math message. Yes. Um, the third number is 2,795 gigatons. And this is actually maybe the most disturbing number in a sense. 2,795 gigatons is the amount of carbon that fossil fuel companies currently have in their reserves that they are planning to burn. Now, this is still underground. It has not been dug up. It has not been burned but it is five times higher than our limit of 565 gigatons. So this essentially means that 80% of the reserves that the fossil fuel companies have must stay in the ground if we want to have a hope of staying below 2 degrees Celsius. Wow. It's a, it's a monumental, it's massive momentum here in that those reserves are going to be tapped into. So it's a, it's a really enormous struggle, and I, I really honor Marissa Zuckerman, what all of you with associated with 350.org and I'm hoping uh, allied organizations, because there are there are other organizations that are uh, working along with you on this uh, kind of thing. And there's, um, let's see, we said 350.org, do the math as a video. There's a lot of other videos that are right on the 350.org website, as well as um, some other resources that you'd like to refer us to as we start to close the interview, Marissa. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, as you said, the Do the Math movie is a 40-minute movie um, that really goes into details about these three numbers and what they mean, as well as um, into Bill McKibben and what 350 is doing around the country. That movie can be found on the 350.org website, along with a number of other resources and a bunch of information about different campaigns and efforts that are going on around the country. So after this summer, Marissa, you're going to return to Pitzer. You'll take up this intensive organizing experience there where um, Lance Neckar, he's the director of the Robert Redford Conservancy uh, for Southern California Sustainability, previously on Ask a Leader, and he's working there at Pitzer. And so you'll be able to take your experience uh, with similarly inclined, involved students there. I'm, I wish you well, and I, I thank you. And I said, as I said earlier, I honor what you're doing and being an example to all of us with uh, giving your your heft to a very important, and I'll say it, essential goal. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being on. So we're going to be back with just a little breather after a little, um, just a little of this. that doesn't get you in the mood, I don't know what will. Um, I'm going to um, just post people on one particular development before I close the show entirely uh, and uh, leave you with uh, next week's program. Eric 
Ohena Lembembe was, that's the operative word, folks, was the executive director of CAMFADES, a Cameroon uh, uh, nonprofit. He was a gay activist. Last week, July 16th, he was tortured and killed. And we are going to, um, I'm going to suggest that uh, listeners concerned about the LGBT movement that's really under siege in so many uh, political societies around um, the around Africa, and among them uh, in Amak, Cameroon, that um, will join the the global LGBT, HIV, and the Roman Catholic communities that are mourning his tragic death. People are able to contribute to his memorial page on the Facebook. Uh, it's going to be culminating in burial services this Saturday on July 27th. And I'll be arranging in August, I'm hoping on the 6th, to have the good Reverend Canon Albert Ogle return with us. And I don't know if Colin Stewart's, um, he'll be able to join us to, um, to post us on developments, including uh, Mr. Eric Lembembe's, um, what his contributions were. And there will be an aftermath of that killing, and we're, we'll take stock of that because it matters. And we'll, uh, we'll still look at uh, connecting the dots with some of the movements some of the Exus International developments uh, locally that had redirected their energies away from some of that homophobic legislation that's that's catching uh, the gay actors up and, and meeting out such horrific kinds of uh, ends like what Mr. Lemembe did early last week. Well, that is about all the time we have today on Ask a Leader. Uh, next week, we'll hear from two faculty members, uh, one from the law school, uh, Rick Hasen, and one from the public or the uh, political science department, uh, Joseph DiCipio, uh, to take part in a rather uh, consequential review of the Supreme Court's ruling on the Voting Rights Act. And then in the second half of the program, Edward Randolph will be, he's the uh, Energy Division Director for the California Public Utilities Commission, and he'll speak about your electric bill and the plant down the coast from here as it's being uh, decommissioned at the San Onofre. So next up, as always, is Senior George Rosales with George Hat a Hat. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank <laughs> you.